If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. Our text for this morning will be First Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And this is God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Father, we say thank you again for your word. We say thank you again for our ability to sing truths about you and to sing your praise. And I pray that you will show us today beautiful, beautiful truths of the significance of that we would worship you. God, do your will. Accomplish your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you've lived in this world for very long, you know what it's like to hurt. You may hurt because of what other people do or do not do. You may hurt because of health, financial struggles, You may hurt emotionally for reasons nobody around you understands at all. Does your own life seem to have in it more suffering than you feel like you can deal with? I bet some of you have felt that from time to time. See, suffering comes to us from so many angles, from from the culture out there, from our own lives as well. And we need help from the Lord to know how to live and how to keep up hope in the face of genuinely hard things. As Peter writes this first epistle of his, God's people living in Asia Minor are in the process of and just about to face persecution. Now how do I know? How do I know that they're going to face persecution? Well, historically we know because Peter, who wrote this letter, faced his own death during the end of the reign of Nero Many historians believe that Nero, the the mad emperor of Rome, once actually had the city of Rome set on fire so that he could watch buildings burn down and so that he could allow the sight and the emotion to move him to write what he felt like would be an epic poem. And when the Romans were upset that the city, much of the city had burned down, Nero blamed the Christians in Rome for causing the fire, and he began to murder Christians in brutal ways. Now, we don't know for sure if Nero really had the fire set, but we do know Nero blamed the Christians. Even Peter's own words in this letter, though, point us to a very difficult season that's coming. Every chapter of 1 Peter is filled with the fact that suffering is on its way, it's on the horizon. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter called the recipients of this letter elect exiles who were scattered. Down in verse 6, Peter says that they have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, 
Peter predicts that the lost will speak against the Christians as evildoers in verse 12. He points that servants will suffer unjustly in 2.19, that they will do good and suffer for it in 2.20. In 2.21, Peter says that Christ set us an example to follow in his suffering. Chapter 3, verse 6, Peter urges wives to do good and not fear what is frightening. In 3.9, Peter tells Christians not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, which hints that evil and reviling are on the way. Peter promises that God will bless his children who suffer for righteousness' sake in 3.14. In 3.16, the people will be slandered and their good behavior will be reviled. In 3.17, he tells the church it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In chapter 4, verse 1, they're told to expect to suffer in the flesh. The lost are not going to understand why Christians do not behave as they do, and they will malign the faithful in 4.4. In 4.12, we see a fiery trial coming. 4.13, Christians share in the sufferings of Christ. 4.14, they're going to be insulted for the name of Christ. 4.16 speaks of suffering as a Christian, while 4.19 talks about suffering according to God's will. Chapter 5, verse 7, Peter tells people to cast their anxieties on God because he cares for them. But that indicates they're going to have anxieties. In 5, verse 8, we see that the devil is prowling after Christians like a lion wanting to devour us. In 5, 9, the Christians in Asia Minor are going to face a suffering that's like the sufferings of Christians all over the world. In 5, 10, God will restore and strengthen them after they've suffered for a little while. And in 5, 13, Peter calls the church where he is, she who is in Babylon, and that's a reference to being held captive by an enemy power, just like the Israelites were captive in Babylon, what, 500 years before this. So that's how I know Peter sees the storm cloud of suffering on the horizon. He fills every chapter of this letter with counsel for Christians who are living in a world not their own. And the Lord is going to give us in this book great reasons for hope to survive in this world. Now, first of all, let me say to you, um, the book is more encouraging than that just sounded. But I suppose none of you will challenge me that the book's about suffering, will you? And I will also say this. If you look at this as someone who doesn't know Christ and say, look, look at how the Christians are going to suffer, recognize this. The word of God gives Christians the ability to suffer with hope. Those who don't know the Lord have nothing upon which to rely for hope in times of sorrow. But if you were the author of this book, if you saw suffering coming, what would you want to do? Wouldn't you want to offer hope to the believers who are going to go through that suffering? You would, wouldn't you? If you were writing this letter, I would think that you'd want to start with some encouragement. You, you, you would want to open up with a bit of counsel that will give the people what they need to cling to when they face hardships. Because nobody wants five chapters worth of suffering. 
Nobody wants to live like an alien in this world. Nobody wants persecution. So I believe, friends, that it is extremely significant that we see what Peter chooses to do as he opens this letter. What is going to be the first thing that Peter says to you and me after the greeting that's supposed to put our feet on the right path to survive a dangerous future? If you're ready to take notes, I want you to be ready for three points as we look at the opening of Peter's letter to Christians who are really in the path of suffering. Now, Lord willing, this is going to be the first of two messages in these three verses. We'll get more as we go. First point, the first point, by the way, is the title of the sermon, Worship to Survive. Worship to Survive. Verse 3 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week we studied the greeting. It was rich in doctrine related to salvation. And now Peter opens the letter with a doxology, with a hymn of praise. He pronounces praise to God And when we study what follows the praise to God, it's going to connect the praise that Peter pronounces at the beginning of this verse to the very topic of the theology of our salvation. The Greek word Peter uses here, translated blessed, is a word that means to speak good about. It's the word eulogetos. Does that sound familiar to you? It's where we get the word eulogy. In our language. You you don't determine the meaning of a Greek word by what it means in English, by the way. That is a fallacy. But in this case, at least we got the English word correct from the Greek. A eulogy in a funeral is when you speak good thoughts, good things about the person you're remembering. And and here, the, the idea of speaking praiseworthy things is true. Whether the setting's a funeral or anything else, the idea of speaking positive truth about somebody is what's in view with the word that Peter uses here to say, blessed be God the Father. Now, be careful right here not to misunderstand what the word blessed means or how the word bless may be used. When you and I ask God, Lord, please bless me, we're asking God to give to us a goodness that we lack. Right? When you ask God to bless you, you're not saying, Lord, please praise me. Say how great I am, God, would you please? No, you're saying, Lord, I need help. I need goodness in my life that I don't currently have. You're asking God to increase the goodness in your life. But when we say God is blessed, when a psalm or a prayer opens with the phrase, blessed be the Lord, It is surely not saying that we give anything to God that adds goodness to God. Remember, God is the ultimate of good. You and I could not add even an ounce of goodness to God. So Peter's not saying God is benefited by us blessing him. We're not giving God something he doesn't have. Peter is praising God, and Peter's telling his readers that God is the one of whom you and I are to speak most highly. 
for who God is, for what God has done, you should burst forth in praise. God is infinitely and eternally worthy. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. We should speak truth about God. We should sing truth about Him. We should hear truth about God with joy. To risk an aside here, this morning I read an article that talked about something C.S. Lewis wrote. Because the question may come to your mind, what about when I don't feel it though? What if I don't feel joy? What if I don't feel like praising? C.S. Lewis said, do it anyway until you feel it. No, it's much better to praise God with a whole heart. But if your heart's not solid, let your words still be true. Blessed be God is a common phrase, by the way, in the Old Testament. It's a way that saints of old spoke about God. And what it means to bless God, I'll put together here, friends, is we're going to speak the truth of the goodness that is God's. It is to intentionally repeat words of truth, to sing or speak words of praise, words that genuinely recount God and they genuinely talk about his greatness. In simple form, blessing God is a part of biblical worship. Now, I want you to, I'm going to make a little bit of a leap. And by the way, if you think I'm wrong here, it's okay because the rest of the sermon is going to be right. It wasn't supposed to be funny. Uh, go with me on this step, okay? Think back to our question. What is the right way? What is the tool? What is the way to face hardship, suffering? If you were writing, if you were writing to people that need iron woven into their character, what would you tell them to cling to? What will give them steel in their spine? What will give you steel in your spine to walk through hardships and pain and persecution? Peter shows us in the first phrase, friends, the way that you and I can face what is to come is to worship the Lord. Knowing God, speaking truth about God, that is how you stand. Would you like the courage to stand even if the world around you crumbled? Would you like to be able to stand in the face of pain and hardship? Here's the, here's the trick. Worship the Lord. Worship to survive. Now, in order for us to think in depth about what it means to worship God and to worship Him to survive... I want us to look at three issues inside this point. First, I want us to think a little bit more deeply about what it means to worship God more than just the word bless. Second, I want us to ask why would it be that worship would strengthen you to face hardships? And then thirdly, before we finish this point, We'll take a look at a couple of passages in Scripture that show us worship as a means of strengthening believers for hardships. Okay? First, what is worship? I mean, we just discussed from this verse what the word bless means, but in a more foundational understanding, what is it to worship God? 
Because we all know it's something God commands, right? You know you're supposed to worship God, right? Nobody questioning that? Okay, what is it though? Now, before we try to define worship, let me tell you what it's not. Worship is not a raw emotion. I know of many believers who define the depth of their worship by the extent their emotion or the extent of worship, they define the extent of worship by the way that their emotions are affected by their experience. Did that come out clearly because I don't feel like it did? Many people say that the depth of worship is defined by the depth of the way my emotions are affected by my experience. So, if the songs in the worship service move you to tears, or to applause, or to lift your hands, or whatever you do is it to be expressive, that, they say, is deep worship. But that is not at all. A biblical truth. Worship will naturally move the emotions of Christians quite regularly. Worship will likely contain emotion. But worship is by no means emotion. I, I remember once being told by a pastor that he could just tell by looking at the congregation if they were worshiping. <laughs> I was like, then you don't understand what worship is. If you're telling me the look on their face is what tells you whether they're worshiping, you're not biblical. Neither is worship music. Yes, we sing as an act of worship, and I'm so grateful that we do. It was lovely to hear you guys singing the Alleluia, Amen. It was lovely for us to sing to Christ about needing him as we take our cross and follow him. Those are good things. But worship is much, much greater than just the musical portion of the service. If you have stopped worshiping because you're not singing, you're missing something very important right now. Neither is worship strictly praising. Neither is worship only when you say words of blessing and praise to God. Yes, praising God is part of worship, but worship is more than your words. In Hebrew, the word that most commonly is used for worship in a formal sense is a term that literally means to bow down with your face to the ground. The picture is of prostrating yourself, throwing yourself to the dirt in front of a king or in front of somebody you wish to show great respect for or deep gratitude toward. In fact, if you go to the book of Ruth, when Ruth realizes that Boaz has given her food and he's protecting her, she, it says she falls down on her face in front of him. It's the same word that's translated worship. In, in Greek, the word that we use for worship is, is a word that contains in its meaning, again, bowing, bowing towards someone, kneeling in front of somebody, maybe kneeling down in front of somebody to kiss their hand or to kiss the ring or to kiss the feet or to kiss the hem of a ruler's garment. Any of that could be included in what the word means. Biblically, acts of worship can be formal and they can be informal. They don't have to be always in part of a service. They can be ceremonial. They can be spontaneous. A 
fair biblical theology would suggest that worship is part of any and every aspect of life. So the question, what is worship, could well be answered with a profound, what isn't worship? And it's because while worship involves religious ceremony, worship also involves all sorts of believing obedience to the Lord. In the book, For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship, Daniel Block writes this, True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. You want that on your refrigerator right now, don't you? Would you like me to read it again? How did I know? True worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. That is still my favorite worship definition, but it's probably because Dr. Block taught that to me in seminary. He was a professor of mine, and it... You grow affection for someone when you see them not only teach well, but be just loving and godly. But Dr. Block in that definition shows us he understands that worship is our, your and my, humbly bowing ourselves before God. But it's done through all sorts of actions that are in concert with the revealed will of God. In any way, any action in your life that says, Lord, you are my king, as long as it is in keeping with the revealed word and will of God, is worship. Thus, celebrating, if, if you are actually celebrating the joy of the privilege that you get to go to a service of worship, you're worshiping, even before you get to the service. And the formal acts of reverence that you perform in a worship service, when you sing, when you pray, when you read scripture, when you respond to the preaching, when you receive Lord's Supper, when you observe baptism, so much more. All of those things are worship. And any time you choose to respectfully obey the Lord and his commands, when you choose to honor the Lord from day to day in your obedience to his commands, that too is worship. So some of you worship God in the way that you drive. Some of you do not. A mom changing a diaper worships the Lord. A Husband washing dishes worships the Lord. A man being honest at his workplace when it might cost him worships the Lord. A man at a restaurant or a woman at a restaurant telling the server, you forgot to charge me. 
because they want to honor God, worships the Lord. A church that disciplines a wayward member worships the Lord. Get it? Worship involves all parts of our lives as we obey the Lord as his humble servants. Anything we do that says God is the king and we're the servants, if done in accord with his revealed will, is going to be worship. Yes, it includes ceremony, but it goes so much deeper. It reaches into every sphere of human existence. Worship is bowing down, physically or figuratively. It doesn't matter as you bow before God and you proclaim him king. When you show God to be great and that you are his servant, you worship. And crucially for the purposes that we have this morning, worship includes blessing God by speaking and thinking and singing truth about God and speaking and singing and thinking truth about God's perfect character, whether you feel it or not. Now, let me ask you. Does it seem strange to you to think that worship might be the first solution we get to handle hardship, pain, and persecution? That might feel a little weird to you. Perhaps it'll help you to understand this better when you remember that worship is in many ways the very reason that you exist. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, you guys could probably quote it, right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, right? One thing that is true about the fact that you exist in the image of God, one of the truths, and there's a lot of, of theological truth to draw from being created in the image of God, but one thing that is true about you, being existing, you, you existing in the image of God is as Isaiah 43, 7 tells you, is that you exist for the glory of God. The reason you have flesh and bones and blood and air to breathe is to give glory to God. And by the way, whether you want to or not, you will. We are here to reflect and demonstrate who God is. We are here because God intends that our lives be used by God to display what God is like. And there is no higher good than to display the attributes of God. You think you know what good is. But if your definition of what good is is not that which magnifies the glory of God most, your definition of good is incorrect. Humanity exists to allow God to show His mercy, His love, and His kindness. Aren't you glad? But humanity also exists for God to be able to show His justice and His hatred of sin. And that glorifies God just as much. Now, does it not make sense, as creatures, the thing that will fulfill you most, that will give your soul the highest satisfaction, is when you do the thing for which you were created. That makes sense, doesn't it? If God created you and me to display His glory, then the thing that most is going to fulfill your soul is when you worship the Lord. When you say things that are true of God, sing things that are true of God, do things that honor God, the Lord will help you to find your soul's deepest satisfaction in Him and His glory. 
And if your soul is satisfied as you experience the pleasure of God, your soul is going to be better prepared for the life you have to live in this world. You are, we are exiles. We are strangers in a foreign land. Peter tells us that in 1.1. This world is not your home. But when we have souls full of the joy of the glory of the God who made us, we can stand in this world no matter what it looks like around us. When we regularly, repeatedly, intentionally repeat for ourselves and for others the truth of God and the praise of God, we're made more ready to stand in the most difficult possible circumstances. Worship helps you survive. And again, if it seems strange to you, because I just gave you a logical argument that worship might prepare your soul to stand in hard times. How about biblical example? Let's look at a couple passages that show us the same truth. Psalm 46. You guys know that psalm pretty well. You don't have to turn there unless you just really want to, because we won't stay there long. Psalm 46, the people are in danger. It's a city surrounded and afraid. Enemy armies are all around the city. But you know what Psalm 46 is? It's a song of worship. It is something to be sung and repeated. And what does Psalm 46 tell us if you don't know? Psalm 46, 10 through 11 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You know what God says? Be still and rest in me. Stop fighting and rest in me. If you're an enemy, stop thinking you're going to overthrow me. But where was it found? What book was it? Psalm? What are the Psalms? Songs of worship? It is worship preparing hearts to stand strong in difficult times. That's what Psalm 46 is. How about David in Psalm 63? The prescript, the, 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 the superscript at the beginning of Psalm 63 tells us This psalm was most likely David writing something at a time when his life was in danger because of the attack of his son Absalom. David's own kid was trying to kill him and take the throne. How does David find strength for his heart when Absalom wants to cut his throat? Psalm 63, starting at verse 1, says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. What's the result of seeing God? Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will speak in, will praise you with joyful lips. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Do you see what David's doing to survive? How about one more, just one more. 
Paul and Silas were arrested for preaching the gospel in Philippi in Acts 17. Oh, sorry, 16. Acts 16, 22. Listen to this. They were arrested. This, 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 see if this sounds pleasant, by the way. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted, inflicted many blows upon them, and by the way, y'all, that's not nice. This would have been awful. This is the, one of those kind of beatings that makes you despair of life. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What would you have done at that point? Given up? Talked about how unfair it is? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Would that be your response? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, with or without the supernatural jailbreak earthquake, just notice what Paul and Silas did. They were beaten. They were thrown into prison and they sang. They blessed the Lord, like Peter says in verse 3. Praising God steals, and I mean weaves steel, steals the heart for hardship. Listen to me. If you want to survive in this hard world, if you want to make it as an alien in a strange land, if you want to make it through the suffering that Christians can and will face, you must prepare yourself. And Peter shows us simply by the way he opens this letter that intentional praise, purposeful worship, is a tool in our toolbox to help our hearts to be ready for what is to come Worship to survive. Now, please don't hear me say that's the only reason we worship. But aren't you glad to know that the thing we're made for is the thing that will keep us? This is good. Point number two. Worship the one true God. Worship the one true God. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed. That's as far as we just got a moment ago, by the way. It was blessed. Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice who Peter calls us to bless or praise. The praise is very specific. Did you notice that? Peter praises the God that you and I know as the God of the Bible. If we're not careful, what I just said in that last point about having a life of praise that will be a little different than the lives of many people around us. 
You see, people in the world, many people around us who have no relationship with God at all, would, would agree that a life of praise is the way to face hardships. You've noticed that, haven't you? Because the rest of the world out there, for the most part, knows that a positive attitude is a, genu- a genuinely and generally good thing. But Peter is not telling Christians to speak positive things or name and claim their prosperity. Peter is being specific here in saying that the worship that will sustain you through the storms that are coming in this book is the worship of the triune God. This is now the second time in three verses where we have specifically Trinitarian references If you recall from last week, verse 2 points to our being elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to the Son and for sprinkling with His blood. Now we see Peter blessing God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, here again, Peter is completely specific that the only worship that's going to make any difference is the worship of the triune God, the one God who is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our church's simple, sweet little doctrinal statement speaks of the Lord like this. It says, We believe that there is one living and true God eternally existing in three persons, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that these are equal in every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. Simply put, the Bible reveals to us, friends, that there is only one God, not many. Even, even my children know. What if I ask how many gods are there? There's only one. But the Bible reveals to us that this one God always exists. I say that in the present tense, but you could always say always has and always will. Always exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. These three persons are each truly God, and God is still one. What we have to recognize is that if our worship is not the worship of that God I just described, if our worship is... Not, don't, don't, don't say that there's not more to understand the Trinity by any means or that it couldn't be said better, but if we are not worshiping the triune God as he is revealed in Holy Scripture, then our worship is idolatry and our worship is blasphemy. If you do not worship the real God, you worship something that does not exist. Or you worship a devil. Or you worship yourself. And the Lord is clear. He will not allow his glory to be shared with anyone or anything else. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. At the end of Matthew, when Jesus claims all authority in 28, 18 to 20, says Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What will he command? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How, Jesus? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Worship, if it is to be acceptable, must be biblical. You don't just get to worship in your own way. <laughs> Can you imagine being foolish enough to approach the infinitely holy creator God of the universe and say, I'm just going to tell you how you're going to get my praise. I don't think so. You worship the God of the Bible and the way the God of the Bible says or your worship is useless. Thus, to survive in this harsh, difficult world, you've got to know the Word of God. Know the Lord as God reveals Himself. Know what He asks you to do and worship the Lord both in spirit and truth. Third point, last point for this morning. Worship in response to salvation. Third point this morning is worship in response to salvation. Verses 3 through 5, the whole passage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now why, here's the question, why bless this God we've been talking about? Peter shows us right here in these verses. And this morning, we're not going to spend a lot of time focusing on all of the phrases in those three extremely heavy verses. Instead, we're going to see simply the topic to which Peter points in those verses. Next week, Lord willing, we'll do our best to unpack it a little bit further, okay? So Peter, in a nutshell, tells us, bless God. Why? Because of our salvation. Everything in verses 3 through 5 is a description of your salvation. We see why God saved us according to his great mercy. We see that God is the source of our salvation caused. We see that God is the guardian of our souls. We see that our salvation is eternally secure. We see that our salvation is moving toward the hope of the end of the age. And without breaking every bit of that down this morning, Christians understand that if you are truly going to bless God rightly, you must truly understand salvation. Understand that salvation is from the mercy of God, as verse 3 says. Understand that being born again is caused by God. Understand that salvation is to a living hope because Jesus rose from the dead. Understand the security and the safety of heaven. You've got to get this doctrine down as best you can so you can worship God as best you can. Let me remind us of a couple of things we've got to know. God is holy. You know, that should cause you to tremble. It should cause you to shiver. When it doesn't, ask yourself if you've really considered what holy means. And ask yourself if you've really remembered you're a sinner. God is perfect with no fault and no sin in him whatsoever, and God cannot and will not tolerate it in others. The standard that you have to meet to please God, the standard that all people have to meet to please God, is God's perfection. How close 
friend are you to being infinite in perfection? We are sinners. Every last one of us has fallen short of the perfection of God. Because we've fallen short of the perfection of God, every last one of us in our rebellion has offended the righteousness and the justice of God. And because God is infinite in his perfection, our offense before the Lord is an infinite crime which deserves an infinite punishment. That's where we start. Can you imagine starting a trial or starting something knowing that you've already earned the death penalty? Well, I promise I'll be good from now on. Okay, well, get past the death penalty and you'll be fine. We'll let you go after that. Remember, however, God created humanity for his glory. And in the eternal plan of God, God chose that he was going to rescue for himself out of fallen humanity. God is going to rescue for himself out of the people who say, we hate you, we don't want you, we despise you, we reject you, we turn from you. God says, okay, many of you I will leave to yourselves, but I tell you what, I'm going to rescue out of that group people to be mine. And God the Father sent God the Son to earth to rescue for God's own glory, out of God's own kindness, a people for God's name. And Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth in a human body and he lived a life of perfection. And Jesus tells us all he is willing to give his perfect record of righteousness to those who come to him for mercy. Do you have a perfect record of righteousness that's your own? Would you be okay if your score sheet got switched with Jesus's and so you got graded by Jesus's test? That's what it means, folks. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice, an offering for sin, to be punished for your sin and my sin if we come to him. God punished Jesus for all of the sins that God is ever going to forgive. And Jesus took upon himself the just penalty for every sin of all the people who were ever going to come to him. And then Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. And in his resurrection, Jesus proves that his claim to be the Son of God is true and that every last person who's willing to come to him will eternally be saved. And if you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, if you do not want the hell that we all deserve, you must repent and believe. Repent. Admit and turn away from your sin. I'm not good enough to be the master of my life. I mess it up. Repent. Letting go of the leadership of your life and yielding, yielding to Jesus submitting to Jesus, bowing to Jesus as your master. Make him the king. Believe in Jesus. Believe in his finished work. Believe that he died to save you and ask him, Jesus, please save me. And if you've never done this, friends, if you've never done this, I urge you, I urge you, do this today. And if you need help to understand it more or to know what it means, come talk with me after service. I will be happy to visit with you. Or come talk to one of our elders. Or come talk to one of our deacons. Or honestly, come talk to somebody who looks like they know what they're doing around here. (laughs) Because they'll help you. And if they can't help you, they'll bring you to someone who can. Church members, is that true? If you can't help, you'll bring them to somebody who can? Amen. Amen. All who have turned away from their sin and trusted in Christ for real, have been saved. 
And this salvation is the work and the gift of God. It was planned by God, caused by God, secured by God, and is kept by God. And so if you are saved, your only right response is to worship God for such a sweet, glorious salvation. You see, Peter saw a storm of hardship and persecution on the horizon. And Peter showed the believers in Asia Minor, in the very shape of the opening of this letter, that the way to be ready to face life in a hard world is true worship. Are you struggling? Are you fearful? Are you hurting? Worship the Lord. Constantly, continually, repeatedly, seriously, bless the Lord. Sing His praise. Speak truth about Him from His Word. Worship the true God. Worship as a response to salvation. Worship to survive. Let's pray together. Lord, we need You to do mighty things in us so that we might please You. And here we have seen a call to worship. Not to a church service, although that's part of it. But we've seen a call to magnify you as you command for your glory. And we've seen that that is the tool, that is the way that we will survive in a lost and dying world. God, please, by your grace, for your glory, make us true worshipers. For those who are here who don't know you, I pray this, draw them to yourself and save their souls. For those who are wrestling with you, bring them to a place of submission and repentance. Where I am hurting, let me respond with worship. You are good. May your name be magnified forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.